Hello and welcome to Plattress. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're talking about something in the air by Suzanne Enoch. This was published in 2022 and is a new series. If it's going to be a series, it might just be a standalone. I think it's probably going to be a standalone. That might be for the best. And um, full disclosure, we did receive a complimentary copy from St. Martin's Press. Wonderful. So this is a huge departure for Suzanne Enoch. Yes, we've read her most recent series and then a couple of books from other previous series. They are, I mean, we really enjoyed them for the most part. We had a lot to say about the books. Um, When we heard she was publishing a new one, we were like, yeah, we really want to read it. This book is very, very different. I think I'll start off by saying there is no air in this book. There is no air. So the title's a little weird. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is... It's not a romance novel. It's not. It's not a romance novel. It tracks most closely with a traditional regency. But even a traditional regency, there's more romance than this. Right. Like, we don't just mean it's not explicit, which it's not. We, like, the relationship between the hero and the heroine is not the point of this book. Mm-hmm. So, let's, let's do the book jacket. Let's do our summaries. And then let's talk about it. Because I, I think we really want to talk about this book. Yeah. All right. Emmeline and William Pershing have enjoyed a perfectly convenient marriage for eight years. Their relationship is a seamless blend of their talents and goals. They've settled into separate, well-ordered lives beneath the same roof and are content to stay that way. Or so Emmeline thinks. And if William has secretly longed for a bit more from the woman he adores, he's managed to be content with her supreme skills as a hostess and planner, which has helped him advance his career. Then, when Emmeline's grandfather, the reclusive Duke of Welshire, summons them both for his birthday celebration and demands they bring their two little angelic children, William is stunned to discover that his very proper wife invented not one, but two heirs to fulfill the agreement for living at Winover. But surely if Emmeline and William team up and borrow two cherubs to call their own, what could go wrong? Enter George, age eight, and Rose, five the two most unruly orphans in Britain. As the unsanity unfolds, their careful professional arrangement takes some surprisingly intimate turns as well. Perhaps it takes a bit of madness to create the perfect happily ever after. I don't actually have any issues with this book jacket because it very clearly sets out what you're going to read. Except it says, like intimate turns and I mean I guess technically it's true but it is not intimate by the terms of a historical romance yeah so as usual we generated a random number between 1 and 50 and wrote our own summaries using that number as a word count and this episode that number is 25 Meg you want to start yeah this is for people in the mood for a classic Hollywood screwball rom-com That said, I was in the mood for classic Suzanne Enoch historical romance. Yes. Um, Yep. So I think where you touch on the screwball comedy and the rom-com, and especially the, like, baby, the ones with kids, Mm -hmm. I delve into that a little further in my summary. Children cannot be treated like many adults capable of giving consent and managing their lives on their own, even if they are sad, tragic orphans. It's true. I felt like if this were real life. These people were awful. These children were exploited. 
Absolutely. At the very least, if not emotionally manipulated. Uh, the, Lee, and like a blind verging on abuse. That is the entire point of this book is that they are exploiting these children. Like they themselves say to each other, we're going to give them such a great opportunity. They know that they're not. They understand very quickly that they're being kind of shitty people and they still go forward with it. Full speed ahead. And like you're left feeling like, of course, there's a feel good ending where they're all a big happy family. And I'm like, I don't trust these people with these children. No. On the one hand, I actually feel like this is maybe historically accurate. On the other hand, I've said it before, I'm saying it again. I'm not reading this because I want to read 100% like actual historical accuracy. I also think we should just state now, like, a lot of this book is from the kids' POVs. Like, like a good 40 to 50%. And then some additional is from staff's POVs. Mm-hmm. So, like, when we say this as a romance, like, the interactions between the main couple are literally not even, they're not on the page mm-hmm. for significant portions of the book, which mm-hmm. I was just not prepared for. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about what romance tropes there are, because there are some romance tropes that appear. Yes. There is a marriage of convenience. And it's a marriage of convenience set up in the prologue. And I had a lot of hope <laughs> after this set up marriage of convenience I about agree. where this book was going to go. Totally. Totally. And to a degree, this gets to not marriage in crisis. I don't know what the, we've read a lot of marriages like this before, like the long-term marriage of convenience where both parties went in eyes wide open, mm-hmm. but it was not sexual for years and years and years and years. I'm thinking of... Ravishing the heiress? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then one day, and one of the parties has been in love the whole time. Yes. And then, I was like, you have to, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. And then one day a switch gets flipped that changes perspectives of the person who's been right. sad about the marriage the whole time or thinking it was just a partnership and convenience. Yes. The reason behind the marriage of convenience um, is that there were inheritance shenanigans. About the family home that she as a woman feels an innate connection to as her land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a friends to lovers. No, it's not. I mean, that's the trope that she's trying to employ. They grew up together, and then one day, they grew up together like brother and sister, and then one day he saw her, not a sister. But he never told her, and he she never, never told knew. her, she never knew. And then eight years later, now they're at finally both in the same place and are seeing each other as romantic prospects, I guess. Yep. Um, so he, she obviously has a toxic family of origin with this like inheritance drama and this house being held over her family's heads. Mm -hmm. But I do think it was historically accurate in a way I actually didn't mind Mm -hmm. how like not in their lives their parents were. I totally, totally agree with you. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily their parents were abusive or like, you know, other than kind of laying out the terms of this arrangement for her. They just like, they weren't close. Kids weren't in important as people back then. Yeah. I thought that was like kind of one of the first times I've seen that a parent is neither like great or terrible. Yeah. They were just kind of like a factor until they weren't. Until they weren't. Yeah. They, they raised her until she was an adult and now they're like different people and sometimes they read each other letters. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And then this I think plays more, not more, but it plays into that classic Hollywood screwball comedy. Yeah is that there is an increasingly complicated cover-up of an initial lie. So you sometimes see that in romance novels, but it's often more hedged in, like, misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. Where, like, someone tells a little white lie, and then 
like they either get overheard or like they go to the partner mm-hmm. to say, you need to help me fix this. Right. Like, oh no, I promised I'd have a date to this wedding. So now I have to hire someone because mm-hmm. I've been telling people for years yes. about my great boyfriend. Exactly. Yeah, so you yeah, do yeah. see it in historical romance you do sometimes. See it. Mm-hmm. I, I think would say it's more of a, but it's definitely in a rom-com. Yes. It's like a rom-com trope. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about the quality of this book. I thought the writing in this book was really good. I totally agree. I thought, because I was actually really struck by that. Like, I've always thought her writing was good, but I thought it was particularly good in this book. And I thought all of the characters had really distinct voices and personalities, given how many perspectives are in this book. I thought that was actually a real feat. Yeah, we saw at least, because I'm trying to think, we saw Hannah's, we saw the Butler's, we saw Tom's, we saw Will's, and uh, Emmeline's. We saw Rose's, we saw George's, and we saw... James's mm-hmm. perspective. So that's eight different perspectives. That we can think of right now. There may have Probably been Probably more. Yeah. Um, that we saw the world through their eyes. I think maybe even one of the nuns. Yep. Um, and you could tell immediately. Like, we, we did read a, um, an unfinished copy. So we read an advanced reader's copy. And so that meant that sometimes there weren't like spacing uh, between different characters, or there wasn't there wasn't the punctuation to indicate that there were different um that there characters. was a page break or something. Yeah. but you could tell immediately when there was a new paragraph that it was from a new perspective. No, it was immediately, super well done on that front. And I thought her character development was really good too. Like not, I'm sorry, not that necessarily the development, but the the way she wrote the characters, I thought was very very good. Yes. I, I thought it was really interesting to see Emmy's perspective, what she thought that Will thought about her, and then you saw from Will's perspective. So all these things I thought were just really well done. It was so well done that when you realized that they were basically paying money to temporarily house children without any real idea about what that was going to do to their futures. And to, like, to the kids. Mm-hmm. That, that's when you're like, oh, this, this is not as funny as, as, it, as, as I think the book wants it to be. Yes. I also think that in the name of all of those diverse perspectives, something I, I've come to expect from Sudan and Enoch is even if there's not, like, explicit on the page, there's like heat moments, there's sexy moments, there's like a palpable tension between the hero and heroine. So not only did this do away with all of that, partially because 60% of the book wasn't from their perspectives, but even in the moments where I thought there was supposed to be like a little bit of underlying sexiness, there are these children they're abusing in the room with them. Right. Like you can't get lost in the moment where it's like what's bringing them together is the fact that they've both realized they're actually bad people. Yeah. Yeah. It takes... Takes them a while to realize that. Takes them the entire book to realize that. I mean, the ending is them realizing that they were bad people and they have to, like, not be bad anymore. Great. But it, it takes, like, 97% of the book to get to that point. And I still don't think they fully recognize the harm that their original plan had caused. I think they decided they loved the kids and wanted to be parents. Mm-hmm. This is another romance trope. She's decided she's infertile based on very little actual evidence. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
But that isn't really delved into other than it's the reason she made up these fake kids. Yeah. Which I appreciated. Yes. You know, I, there was, the thing is like, there was, there was a lot that I really appreciated about this book. But it was Uh, not what I expected from a Suzanne Enoch. Oh, uh, completely unexpected. Like absolutely unexpected. I was like, what? It didn't feel like the same author. No. So that said, in her dedication, she did dedicate this book to a friend who watches Cary Grant movies with her. And that should have maybe tipped me off that this wasn't going to be like, it's getting Scott in here. Scott under the covers. You know? Yeah. Like, Cary Grant is not known for... Yeah, but people put things in their dedications all the time that aren't a reflection of what's in the text. It's true. It's true. But... In this, this case, it clearly was. <laughs> this also feels like, you want to know what this feels like? This feels like a COVID book. So? Well, I, I feel like there have been several authors recently who are like, during COVID, we're having a really hard time. And they're like, I need to write something. And it just doesn't reflect what they normally write. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it's been a huge win. And in other cases, you're like, what? Where did that come from? Like Sally Thorne's Angelica Frankenstein, for example. What the heck was that? Yeah. I don't know. And it feels a little bit like that here. I feel like Suzanne Yannick was like, I need to write something just different because my life is really different right now. Like, I can't, I can't write a romance novel, so I'm going to write this screwball comedy. But the premise is just a little rough. Yeah. It's, it's the premise. It is not the writing. I, wanna, I, I don't know how clear I can make that. The writing was really enjoyable. Right, but I think there's a, you said before we started recording, there's a reason these movies aren't made anymore. It's true. Like, because this is, like, not funny. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the issue. Like, when you watch those movies, you do laugh, and then you go, oh, God. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least this doesn't have the, like, added layer of, like, child actor exploitation. Right. Yes, thank God. Yes. Right. One of the other things is, like, the screwball comedy ending mm-hmm. that needed to exist here had a lot of actual hanging threads mm-hmm. that I feel like in a traditional historical romance, because their difficulties about what their life together in the future will look like, right. like that would have been the conflict to be resolved. Right. So like stuff with his career and where they'll live. So instead there's like this big grand, oh no, we do love the kids revelation at the end. And that like hand waves away all of the other problems. Yeah. They're like, we love the kids. And also we've been liars not just about our lives, but also about our feelings and like how happy we are and stuff like that. So we just need to be our authentic selves. Like, I think that's the moral of the story. Right. right? But to the detriment of everything they've cared about previously, and they don't have that conversation. Yeah. Like it's not an agreement. Like this is the feel good. Oh, look, everything's fine now ending when like, you know, everything wouldn't be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like major things that weren't resolved in the name of this like big happy family ending. Right. And as a romance reader, that frustrated me because I want those conversations to happen on the page. I want that resolution between the two people. And that's where, like, I feel totally fine saying this is not a romance novel. Yeah. Because this is not about the two of them communicating toward being partners. Right. This, these are two people who, like, are caught in a lie, are working on getting themselves out of that lie together. And then, oh, look, and it fixed our relationship and now we're happy at the end. There's not, like, that relationship development. Mm-hmm. There's character development, yes. but not relationship development. I, you know what? You're so right. You're so right. That's what it is. I was 
really into Tom and Hannah's relationship. Yes. <laughs> like, if, she, if that had, like, oh my gosh. Can you imagine if this book had been written from their perspective as their romance? And, like, having to deal with their employers doing this really, like, out-of-character weird thing. And being in a subservient position, so there's not much they can do other than, like... You have to kind of watch it. It's like a Moliere comedy where there's the, there's the you know, upstairs-downstairs, yeah. but it's written from the perspective of downstairs. That would have made this a whole lot more sympathetic. Yes. Like, even if at the core the kids are being abused, knowing that there were two parental-adjacent figures actually trying to do the right thing. Yes. Exactly. That could have been really would cool. Would have been much... I hadn't thought of that until you said it, but that would have probably worked a lot better for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then... Because I was really into their romance. They were very cute. It was, like, not even novella length in the book, though. It was, no. like, two scenes. I mean, if that's what we're glomming onto. I know. I think it's also important to recognize that the children were not written as, like representative of their ages yeah. that said like that's in line with screwball comedies yeah like you know she he's supposed to be eight she's supposed to be five i felt it, it would have worked more if it was like 10 and 8 probably would have been more of their their you know would have fit their language a little better yeah to be honest that didn't bother me too much uh, obviously for this plot to work they had to be precocious as all get out yeah. and they had to be an age that is like reasonable that she's been hiding them and that they didn't get so old they weren't sexy anymore for this book to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. some which is funny cuz like that wouldn't have needed to be a consideration here cuz there's no sex. There's no sex. But, you know, she couldn't be older than 26. That's disgusting. I mean, there there really is no sex because it's 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 actually really funny you say that and especially thinking about a screwball comedy, what indicates to you as the reader that they're having sex is now that they're sharing a bed. Yep. They had separate beds before, and now they're sharing a bedroom. Yep. And so I guess that's like the little visual signal to you, <laughs> right? They push the beds together. <laughs> yeah, I can. Anyway. I mean, content warning, it's everything we've talked about. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. There's really nothing to add. And there's no, like, there's no rape. There's no sexual abuse. There's, you know, nothing like that, but they are very vulnerable children in a situation that they can't control, and no one's really looking out for their interests. And they're no being one. treated like adults mm -hmm. by all the adults around them. Which, again, is probably accurate for the time period. However, very difficult for a modern reader to digest. And for the record, I'm not saying that, like, children need to be infantilized. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying... Babies need to be protected from the world. Kids are often more mature than we give them credit for being. But they're certainly not effective advocates for their own interests. And no. That's why, like, that's supposed to be a parent's job. And so ultimately at the core of this is these kids only have had adults exploiting them yes. their entire lives. Their entire lives, yeah. And the main characters never actually grapple with that. No, they, they don't. only really decide to keep the kids because they've decided they like the kids. Mm -hmm. Not because they've realized they fucking have to. Well, not because they've realized that these are... Because, I mean, it's, again, the character development from, oh, I made up some kids, so let's get some kids, to, oh, these are actual people, to, oh, these are actual humans that deserve respect, to, oh, I love these people. Mm -hmm. I liked that character development, and it worked really well. Then again, it, it, it's not, it worked too well, yeah. right? 
I don't know if that makes sense. There was no moment where I forgot that these children were being exploited. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, exploitation takes many forms, right? Yeah. So we're not saying that they were working in a sweatshop or, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, they were, the way that the Pershings put it is they're getting a holiday away from their, you know, everyday life and they get to learn to read or learn to draw, learn to ride ponies. So they are like having this nice, they're not, like nothing bad is happening to them. And yet, it's still not good for them. They are being explicitly robbed of affection and trust over and over and mm -hmm. over again. And, like, even when the Pershings, like, agree to, like, try to find them a better family, mm -hmm. they're present for all the conversations about, like, the fact that these people don't really want them. Right. Like, it was all so sad. It was really sad. It was really sad. And... I mean, it, it worked really well because then that's why the kids acted many of the time the way that they acted. Um, so again, the, the kids felt like authentic characters, yeah. if, if a little old for their ages. But again, it is it's tough. So take with that what you will. I don't think I can recommend this one because I... I don't know who wants to read about children being exploited. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just not, it's just not a historical romance. I think that's the biggest, the biggest thing about it. And we don't know if it's being marketed as one or not, but clearly Suzanne Enoch has a mm -hmm. following yeah. that is going to expect something in line with her previous books. Like, I saw the cover is doing that, like, modern rom-com thing yep. as opposed to the historical romance thing. Mm -hmm. But at this point, so many historical romance novels are doing that that it's not necessarily an indicator of what's beneath the cover absolutely yeah so anyway thank you guys so much for listening 